It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. We start with the controversy over the downtown east side street market. Now, this has operated in the downtown east side for several years now. Local people buying and selling goods down there. Targeted this week, though, by the Vancouver Police Department. They said there was a lot of stolen merchandise being fenced down there at that street market. They are now encouraging the public to not shop down there. There's a lot of stolen products being sold in that street market now i talked to adam palmer about this yesterday the chief of the vancouver police department here's what he told me you know those intentions of the market are good and we want to see people like that supported and you know assist with their well-being but by the same token we're not going to allow you know organized criminals and people that are not homeless are not addicted are not uh, suffering from poverty issues that are taking advantage of people and having them steal from stores like, you know, London Drugs and IGA and Sephora and just, you know, going through picking like locusts through the stores downtown and just stealing, you know, left, right and center and then selling things in the original packaging with price tags on it and sometimes security tags still on it in a market. Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer on this show yesterday encouraging the public now do not shop in the street market. Let's get the other side of it here now. My guest is Sarah Blythe. She's been a longtime advocate for residents in the downtown east side. She's the executive director of the Overdose Prevention Society. Sarah, thanks for coming on today. Hi, thank you for having me. You bet. Sarah, let's talk about the downtown east side street market here now. Like, What is the purpose of this market and why is it important to the neighborhood in your opinion? Well, the purpose of the market, it started in um, 2010. It was a, it was a, just a protest of, um, you know, just the homelessness uh, at, when we were getting the Olympics at that time. So, um, and it was started by Van Du and a bunch of uh, homeless people and community activists. And it was a really big market and, and it was a really great market. And, you know, tourists would come and it's, it's uh, been really good for the community. Um, a lot of people have left the survival sex trade. Um, they can buy, sell, trade uh, items with each other, so no one really goes without. And it's just really a, a lively place in the community. Okay, what do you think about people, the in- so. what do you think about the enforcement action by Vancouver Police down there this week? They've arrested. They say they've arrested over 200 people. Over 320 charges, recovered $75,000 of stolen property, and they advise the public, look, don't shop down there. It's a lot more complicated than just saying uh, don't shop in the downtown east side and that the market is bad. And, I, and one thing I wanted to mention about the police, every day yeah. the police and the city workers come up and down that block and they take people's things, including tents, things that people sleep in. I've seen them take things that people need to survive, and they do it really uh, all the time. So it's, you know, and, and I would say that that's, that makes people more desperate as well. So I think well, the we police, really need to... Like, like if you, but if you take a close look at what the police reported out on this week, they said, look, we, we had undercover officers down there for weeks, and we saw 
large-scale trafficking in, in stolen items, everything from power tools to electronics, still in packaging, cosmetics, designer clothing, um, sunglasses, on and on. And like, I take your point that maybe some, maybe not all yeah. of it is stolen, but you so know, they I've laid seen, they laid I've hundreds of charges. Yeah, so I've seen what they take, and I've seen, you know, um, I've seen what they've taken. Sometimes they take things that aren't stolen. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we don't want people to be stealing things, but at the same time, uh, a lot of things that they take aren't stolen. They're people's property, and uh, and then they don't have any way to, um, you know, they may not have a receipt because it was given to them and things like that. So it's way more complicated than that. I think the police are are definitely uh, overblowing the situation. But I, at the same time, I think that um, it's a desperate situation and we need to help people. Do you think we really there are... Do. We really do need to... People are dying every day. Yeah. I, I really can't stress that enough. And I, and I don't have an um, extreme amount of patience because I just... I see death all the time, yeah. right? I do see you... it all the time. I see people that are in desperate situations who have had really hard lives, who have mental health issues, who have struggled with their whole lives, and, you know, I, I think we need to do better by those people. We really do. We, the, as a society, we have to do better uh, by these people. And I, I think I, I the market that. is way I agree more than that. that, right? Oh, okay, do you the think, The market though... is more, way more than that. And I, and I think, you know, I don't want to see, uh, you know, these people have further damage to them because of this situation. And I advocate for people because I know them personally, a lot of them. Yeah. yeah. And I care about them. And I think that, you know, th- that we need to help people. That's what I think. Well, I, so, c- I certainly agree with that part of it. But would you say that the, one of the other things the police said this week, Sarah, was to see if you agree with this, that sh- they said that there are outside people coming in and taking advantage and, and manipulating the situation. Like people who don't even live in the neighborhood are showing up down there to fence stolen property and, and, and sell stolen goods. And, and they actually named a couple of people in their news release this week. People have been charged with trafficking stolen property down at the street market who they say are, are not part of the neighborhood. They're people coming in from the outside in order to traffic stolen goods. Do you think that's happening? So, so what, I, what I would have to say to that is that, um, that from what I know and my experience of the market, that people aren't there that, that don't need to be sell, you know, to make money. I haven't seen a lot of people who aren't in a desperate situation. Um, I don't think that they should be, uh, you know, I don't think, honestly, I I think the the release is a little overblown, in my opinion. Um, I don't think it really gets down to the social issues of what's really happening. Um, I think we need to provide jobs and other opportunities for people that are desperate. There's a lot of people from from all over the world that have fallen through the cracks down there, plus, you know, people who have a hard time getting a job, people who've gone through the criminal justice system that now can't get a job because they have charges and things like that. So we just need a better, we need to, to do better than we're doing as right. a society. Last question and, for uh, you. Yeah. Last question for yeah. you, Sarah. <laughs> would, you, would you therefore say that the city should continue to support that street market down there? As I understand that the city puts in $300,000 a year to help with the, the infrastructure and the running of that street market. Do you believe that should continue? Because I, I noticed this week after the police reported out on this, this shoplifting that there were some city councillors, and I know you engaged with some of them on social media this week, mm-hmm. who were saying like, oh, you know, the city shouldn't be putting money into this. Look what's going on down there. This is, there's a lot of stolen property being trafficked down there. Why are we putting $300,000 a year of taxpayers' money into this street market? What do you think of that? Like, do you think the city should continue to support it? 
I do. I think the city should continue to support it. I think that definitely um, the city needs to look and talk, you know, speak to the current operator. I don't think that they're necessarily doing the best job that they could be. Um, that's my personal opinion. But I also look at the the uh, the councillors um, that are saying this, and I and I have some questions around. You know, I I just think that they listen to the officers and or or this these press releases and they don't look at it any further than that and it's a really disappointing um and i think there's some reasons behind that that are that are much very much a conflict um so i just think that uh, we need to um we need to really really help people in the end of the day we need to help people okay. they, you know i don't really think the city councillors know exactly what's going on down there and 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 they know the the real issues because if they did they'd be devastated they'd be so, devastated with all the the dead bodies and people piling up they would be devastated with the way that people have to live at night and sleep in the rain and snow and in all terrible conditions they would be devastated that people don't have any enough to eat and what they've gone through in their lives and they would just be devastated if they had they were in my position Sarah, thank you for coming Sarah, thanks a lot for coming on today with your perspective on it. I appreciate it. Okay, take care. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the downtown east side street market. It's been down there for several years now, targeted this week by the Vancouver Police Department for the sale of stolen property at the market. Police this week announcing hundreds of charges and arrests for shoplifting and fencing of stolen items. They are advising the public do not shop down there. Let's check in with Sarah Kirby Young now, Vancouver City Councillor. Councillor, thank you for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm doing good, Councillor. Thank you for doing this. I just interviewed Sarah Blythe, who's a longtime advocate in the downtown east side, and she said, look, the police are overblowing this. Uh, that street market down there in the neighborhood is doing good work for people who are trying to survive on the streets of the city. She doesn't like this idea of telling people not to shop down there. What do you think? Uh, I think that it's incredibly concerning that taxpayers are paying $300,000 a year for the operation of this market that is trafficking in stolen goods. And this is not just about the recent VPD announcement. Um, if you look at the commentary on Twitter, people it, people know this is happening. It's been happening for a number of years, and the operator has an obligation to ensure a lawful operation of that market, and I do not hear them stepping up to that responsibility. Yeah, so what do you think should be done now then? Like, would you advocate for the city to pull funding for that market, or do you think there should be some sort of, I don't know, security measures put in there to make sure there's no stolen property being sold, or...? What would you do? So there are in the operating agreement there are measures um, that are put in place. Like they have security on site every day, and they are supposed to be checking uh, to ensure that they're not trafficking through stolen goods. For example, they could be running uh, checking bikes and looking through five two nine. It's well known that people have to go back there. And you know, one person responded to me on Twitter and said, "I bought back my kid's stolen bike at yeah. the market. It yeah. was gone, and, and and we figured that's where it was, and we went and we got it back. Right? And these yeah. these are not unusual stories. So. Um, I've asked the city manager uh, what steps are in place, um, and I'm waiting for an answer as to what, how we're going to work on this moving forward, because I do not think we should release the funding if the operator is not meeting their obligations. And I want to be clear, I support the purpose of the market to be a social right. enterprise market where people can sell their secondhand goods or items that they're making. You know, I went down myself, I bought a great um, little leather bracelet from a um, First Nations person that was making them, um, and I have it proudly and I wear it. Um, and I think that's amazing. Um, but this trafficking where they're preying on people and further victimizing folks to have them become runners for shoplifting, 
um, is not on. And we are hearing from merchants in Gastown and others where they are the victims of violent shoplifting. So we're privy to that and party to that if we're not going to enforce these standards of the fact that it has to operate lawfully. When I, when I was speaking to Sarah Blythe there as a, a longtime advocate in the neighborhood, she was saying, look, you know, I think the police are overblowing this. I, I don't think there are outsiders down there preying on people. Like when I spoke to Adam Palmer yesterday on the show, uh, the, the police chief, he said there are outsiders coming in there who are effectively uh, hiring people almost to go out and shoplift and then bring the stolen goods back to the market and selling it. And he said that's going on. They've charged people. They've actually laid charges on that. She thinks that that's maybe not happening. I mean, what do you think when you've been down there? Is it pretty obvious when you're down there that there's stolen merchandise being sold there? It's so obvious. There's large, yeah. uh, you know, sort of amounts of goods that are literally still in the packaging. And when you walk by some of those tables, you see that people literally turn their faces away so that they can't be identified. Or all of a sudden, you know, they're sort of starting to shuffle goods to the side. Um, it's it's really obvious. And, you know, I mean, again, you know, the commentary from the public has been loud and clear on this. So you have to be blind not to see it's going on. So, as I said, I've, I've asked our city manager because I don't think that we should be perpetuating this. We're actually just praying, continuing to pray on people. And, you know, Sarah Blythe commented and said that, um, you know, people are, are have trouble getting jobs uh, because they have criminal interactions or records. Well, this is actually just pushing them further down that cycle. Right. So when you spoke to the city manager about this, what what kind of action do you want to see happen here now? Well, I'm waiting for an answer back. I don't have it yet. Um, but what I want to see is the city enforcing standards in that lease, um, in the operating agreement with the Vancouver right. Community Network. And if they're not meeting the standards, then they don't secure the funding. Um, and what I'm just not hearing is a will. It's sort of turning a blind eye to say that people are marginalized, and they are. They're impoverished, and they are. They need help. Yes, they do. And we need to continue to do that, but not in a way that is either further victimizing them or is victimizing um, the surrounding neighborhood. Um, and it's both residents whose property is getting stolen. Um, but again, it's those small businesses. And we're seeing, you know, I mean, you've heard about it on your show, the victims of uh, violent shoplifting. If you're a retail yeah. worker in that store, it's a pretty scary situation to be in. So I, I can't, you can't continue to perpetuate harm on others. Okay. It's a story we're following closely. Councillor, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts on it. Anytime, Mike. Thanks. I appreciate it. Vancouver City Councilor Sarah Kirby Young there. All right. Welcome back to the show. And here we go now with the annual balloting for the Baseball Hall of Fame. The ballots for the 2022 induction into the hall. They've just come out. And every year, it's the same debate. Should players from the steroids era in baseball be admitted into the Hall of Fame. Now, this year's voting is particularly crucial. This is the final year. This is the last year that the names of two players will appear on the official ballot. Barry Bonds, the home run king in baseball, 762 home runs, the most of all time. Roger Clemens, also on the ballot, 4,672 strikeouts third most all time seven Cy Young Awards I mean these two guys obviously first ballot Hall of Famers uh, if they had not of course taken steroids and that's where the rubber hits the road once again this year should they be admitted to the Hall of Fame uh, given their past use of steroids let's go back in time here 2007 Barry Bonds here here he is stepping to the plate and he is about to hit his 756th home run here, breaking the record of Hank Aaron. Have a listen. 
Middleton deals and Barnes hit from high. It's a dig. It is out of here. 7.56. Barnes stands alone. He is on top of the all-time Okay, yeah, on top of the all-time home run list, should he go into the Hall of Fame? All right, let's discuss now with my guest. He literally wrote the book on this one, Lance Williams. He's an investigative reporter. He's done incredible groundbreaking work on the use of steroids in baseball, former reporter with the San Francisco Inquirer. He is the co-author of the groundbreaking book, Game of Shadows, Barry Bonds, Balco, and the steroid scandal that rocked professional sports. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Lance, thank you for coming on today. So happy to be here. Hey, Lance, when you hear that uh, recording there, 2007, of Barry Bonds breaking the, the home run record, like I recall the steroid scandal had already broken wide open, largely beca- because of your work. The, the book you wrote, and I remember it was, it was uh, serialized in part in uh, Sports Illustrated. So, I mean, people already knew about Bonds and, and steroids at that point when he broke the record, right? Yeah, it's an amazing achievement. He had uh, federal agents investigating him. He had uh, the entire sports world inquiring about his drug use, and he was still able to lock in and hit it out. Yeah, he really, he really did, and everyone was watching him and became so controversial. So here we go now with the final year that his name will be on the ballot. Uh, if you had a vote today, Lance, would you vote for Barry Bonds to go into the Hall of Fame or not? You know, I've never had a vote, and so I've never considered what I would do. I, I know uh, if Barry goes in, the Hall should let Pete Rose of the old Cincinnati Reds and Shoeless Joe Jackson of the Chicago Black Sox in. Very similar players. Great, wonderful players on the field. Terrible uh, behavior that damaged the game. And so... Uh, uh, if you can overlook the damage Barry did to the game through his steroids cheating and then the years of denying it, um, then you got to overlook Pete betting on baseball and yeah. Jules Joe throwing the World Series. It means that uh, it would mean that uh, only on the field conduct counts, and that hasn't the, been the way the Halls run it, of course. But you know, standards can change. Can you re- can you remind the listener, Lance, of uh... Barry Bonds and his background with steroids and the and the Balco steroids lab that you did the the groundbreaking investigative work on this story. Like, what was he accused of? I know he he was charged, right? But I think he was convicted on one charge. Yeah, he uh, he was among about thirty five elite athletes who were using undetectable steroids that were distributed by a lab in the San Francisco Bay Area called Balco. Yeah. Uh, First, U.S. doping uh, officials and then the federal agents raided it, and he was ultimately indicted for, not for the drug use, but for lying to a federal grand jury about it. Uh, He uh, was convicted of obstruction of justice uh, after a trial at which significant evidence about his drug use was was, uh, ruled inadmissible. Uh, and then years later, was uh, 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 the conviction was overturned. He was sentenced, meanwhile, to 30 days house arrest. He was living in a mansion in Beverly Hills by then, so that's it's not exactly hard time, but that was the penalty. 
Hey Lance, when you were when you were a reporter for uh, the San Francisco Chronicle back in the day, and you were investigating uh, Barry Bonds, what, what was that like in in San Francisco? Because you know he, this guy was a beloved figure in San Francisco, right? Like even after the steroid uh, the steroid use was was revealed, people loved the guy. They were rooting for him, right? Yeah, they loved him. Uh, they still love him. They named a street after him near the ballpark. Uh, he works as a uh, some sort of coach in spring training. Uh, they're, they're baseball fans. He was made their time as a Giants fan really special, and they would forgive everything. You know, I was a kid in Cincinnati when Rose got in trouble, and it was the same reaction there. Uh, PD could do no wrong. Uh, that's just fans sometimes, or hometown fans. Elsewhere in baseball, uh, Bonds was reviled for the drug use. Yeah. Other towns hated him. Yeah. Speaking to Lance Williams, investigative reporter, he wrote the co-wrote the book Game of Shadows on Barry Bonds. Let me play this here for you, Lance. Get your thoughts. So this is sportscaster Bob Costas here commenting on Barry Bonds and whether he should go into the Hall of Fame. And here's what Bob Costas had to say, and then I'll get your thoughts. Some people with regard to Barry Bonds, let's say, uh, Tom Verducci is one. I have great respect for Tom. He says, I don't care if you took steroids the last year of your career and you already had a record number of home runs. If you ever did it once, that's it as far as I'm concerned. My position is a little bit more lenient than that. When you talk about Clemens and especially Bonds, you're talking about people who are on the short list of the greatest of the great. If you shrunk the Hall of Fame by 80 or 90 percent on their performing merits, they'd still be in the Hall of Fame. So you know, I could see voting for all of those guys, um, especially because of uh, the price they have paid to their reputations, the amount of time uh, that they have waited. Okay, Bob Costas speaking there about Barry Bonds and making the case that, you know, Barry Bonds obviously one of the all-time greats and in terms of his achievements on the field. And as he said there, you could shrink the Hall of Fame by like 80%, and he would obviously still be in the Hall of Fame if you judged it strictly by what he achieved on the field. What do you think of that argument? And also you said there, you know, I would vote, I would vote to put him in because he's waited so long and he's, he's already taken a lot of public humiliation and punishment. Sure. Well, Costas is a uh, really smart, knowledgeable guy. Uh, as to the cost of his reputation, uh, that's mostly because Bonds denied drug use after he was caught. He lied to the grand jury, he lied to the fans, lied to the public, and made uh, people close to him, people who cared about him very much, go through a ridiculous trial and all kinds of personal, interpersonal damage out of his narcissism, really. So I, I can't cut him slack because he got a bad reputation. If he had apologized for using the van drugs when he got caught, it would have been forgotten, I swear. Look at uh, uh, the other players who were caught up in Balco who mumbled an apology, and then uh, life went on. Barry chose to try to impose this fiction on the world that he isn't a drug cheat, but he is. Um, his best seasons were after he began using banned drugs. His greatest season of all was when he was 36 years old. Right. Uh, 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 the drugs made a difference. He was a really great player before the drugs. The drugs made him eligible for that little select 10% of the greatest of all times. 
if you're willing to say you're okay with that, well, away we go. If you're offended, uh, many fans are. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really interesting point you just talked about there about what he achieved before he started taking steroids. I just looked this up last night. So before he started taking the banned drugs, he already had, this is pre-steroids, steroids, he had 445 home runs. He was the MVP three times. He won eight gold gloves as a, as a great defensive player. And that's before steroids. And arguably, you could say those type of numbers would get you into the Hall of Fame even if he, if he didn't achieve everything else he achieved. So do you think that's a, a valid argument to put him in, be, that he did all this great stuff before he started cheating? Uh, only if you're willing to overlook the cheating. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was a great player. People who were really close to him, and he had the big contract, and people who were really close to him said, don't do this. You don't have to do this. Right. But he did anyway. And here we are. Why do you think he did take the steroids at that time? Like, uh, he was already a great player at that point, and he, be- like you said, he took the steroids and he became like this monster player who started hitting more run- home runs than Babe Ruth, you know, after he started taking steroids. I mean, if he had not done it, he still would have been great. Why do you think he did take them? We wrote in the book that he was offended at the attention that Mark McGuire was getting. If you remember, McGuire broke... Sure. Uh, the Roger Maris record and uh, was McGuire was treated as a, just a phenomenon that year. And bonds knew number one, that McGuire was a steroid user. And two bonds knew that he was a much better player than McGuire. And he was just offended by it. And uh, that's what turned him to ban drugs because so many players were taking it and uh, they were the big stars. He felt neglected. That's what we wrote. Hey, Lance, last question for you. When you take a look at the annual voting for the Hall of Fame, you need 75% support on the ballot to get in. Barry Bonds, he's sort of inching up. Like every year he goes up a little higher, but still not close to that 75 to get in. But uh, some people are thinking, could this be the year? Is there like a sympathy vote for him? Because this will be the last year his name will appear on the ballot. So is there a sympathy vote? that vaults him into the Hall of Fame. What, what's your gut tell you on that? Like, if you look ahead to when the voting takes place, I believe it'll, it'll be in January, we know. You know. Do you think he gets in this time? The smart guys say it's a big jump from, what, 62 to 75%. Right. And the, the people who follow this say it would be uh, extraordinary if it happens. Um, of course, I, I reckon he'll wind up in the Hall of Fame at some point on the old timers vote or something. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, there are many players, uh, hall of fame players who don't want him in either. They, mm. the, the late Joe Morgan was one. So I'm not sure he can overcome the resistance, uh, this time. We'll see. It'll be interesting. Lance, it was great to have you on the show today. Thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it. Hey, my pleasure. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. 
All right, let's talk e-bikes on the show now. Electric bikes, they are getting more and more popular and perfect for Metro Vancouver, right, with all those brutal hills. You know, some people, it's tough to get up a hill on a bike, so they can't really get around on one. But you got that e-bike? I think it's no problem. You just flick the switch on that battery-powered motor, you zip up that hill. No problem. So more and more people are getting into this, but... The e-bikes are expensive. They can cost thousands of dollars. So here's the question. Should the government help you buy one? Now, local government incentives are becoming uh, more and more common. The District of North Vancouver just passed an e-bike incentive uh, program. Other communities looking at it as well, including... West Vancouver, where West Van City Councillor Craig Cameron is backing that idea. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Councillor, thank you for coming on. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me. You bet. Thanks a lot. So tell me, um, let's talk about e-bikes here, and why do you think they're a good thing that government should get involved in encouraging people to get on them? Well, it's certainly not going to solve all of our problems, but... Um Research is showing uh, that that e-bikes, um, when when you get people uh, into e-bikes, they will replace sort of thirty to fifty percent of their car trips, um, uh, uh, you know, with with the bike. And one of the biggest issues on the North Shore is um, is traffic congestion. When I talk to my residents, that's what they complain about all the time. And when we have any new developments that are proposed. The real objection is, well, that's going to put 50 more cars on the road or 100 more cars on the road. So if we can start shifting some people, uh, shifting some trips uh, from their cars to e-bikes, we get those people off the road. We obviously reduce emissions and we solve one of our biggest uh, problems all at once. And at the same time, um, it's healthy uh, and, uh, and, and it's, uh, uh, you know, it's good. It's good for the community. So, it's it's an it's an excellent. It's one of the tools. It's certainly not the only tool or the most important tool, but it's one of the tools to address our climate goals uh, and address some of our more practical uh, traffic congestion issues. Yeah, and I think one of the key things here is the the electric quality of the bike is is the game changer here. Like I have talked to people who have tried out these e bikes, some of whom were kind of skeptical or dubious to start with. But once they got on one of these things, uh, they ended up just loving it. They love the e-bike. Like, have you got one? Have you tried one? I I don't have one because I'm still young, uh, young, young and fit enough that I, that I that I don't need it yet. Uh, <laughs> but I I've, I've got an, my eye on one for sure. You know, it, they're particularly uh, appropriate for West Vancouver for a number of reasons. One, obviously, our topography. We're built on the side of a mountain. Right. And, uh, you know, I've got friends who live in the British properties or live up at the top of Ambleside, and you're going up a really steep hill or down a really steep hill to get anywhere. And that's just not fun for most people, uh, uh, you know, to, to bike. Uh, secondly, we have an older population. And the older you get, uh, the less appetizing that kind of hill climb is. And... And, and yet, when you put somebody on an e-bike, going up 15th or 22nd or up to the British properties is, is dead easy, and it's, yeah. a, and it's quite fast. So it's particularly appropriate for us. And then on top of it, we have a last-mile problem with our transit in that we, we don't have the frequency or the transit coverage because of low density that much of the region does. So we have a problem getting people onto transit. Well, the e-bikes are, are they solve that last they're part of the solution to that last mile problem and that you can bike down to the transit route put your bike uh, on the bus and then go downtown easy if you wanted to have right. some sort of hybrid trip so 
it's 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 really it's really a good tool for us. Right. Speaking of West Vancouver City Councilor Craig Cameron, so the e-bikes, like I've talked to people who are, have just been blown away by them. They they've enjoyed them way more than they thought they would, and they've really gotten into it. Like, are you hearing that from your constituents when you talk to people who use these e-bikes? Like, what do they say about them? Well, yeah, it, it, they they love them. They absolutely yeah. love them. One of our councillors is in his eighties, and he's a lifelong smoker. And he was telling me the other day that, that somebody gave him one to try. And he said, I was flying up this hill at, at almost 30 kilometers an hour, and I, I couldn't believe it. He said, I was giggling to myself. Uh, and, and that's what they are. They're, they're, in a way, they're, they're transformational. It's funny how so much attention is paid to electric cars. Um, but it may, it may be that e-bikes have a, have, a, have a bigger impact on how we live than electric cars do. Yeah, okay. How much do they cost? They're not cheap, right? Well, I think you can get cheap ones, you know, in the in the two thousand dollar range. But certainly, uh, my son works at a, an e bike store in North Van, and, and they oh. go up to uh, over ten thousand dollars. So, uh, for sure, they're expensive and cost is a barrier, and that's why an incentive program makes sense for people who don't have unlimited income. Okay, so let's talk about that incentive program. What's your idea for that? Well, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. Saanich has, has been the trailblazer in this regard. In October of this year, they brought in their e-bike program uh, where they had 300 um, uh, incentive sort of rebates that they could hand out. And they have three tiers. I believe their tiers go from $350 up to uh, uh, $1,600. And they've already sold out. I mean, in the space of a couple of months, they've already sold out the top two tiers. And now there's just $350 rebates left. And it's based on, in Saanich, it's based on household income and number of people in your, in your household. So the, the, 18, or the $1,600 incentives in Saanich and the $800 incentives um, were, are for people with uh, household income, let's say a single person, up to 42000 for the $1,600 incentive, up to 55000 for the $800 incentive. Then anybody who makes more than fifty-five thousand lives on their own only gets a three hundred and fifty-dollar incentive. So we don't really want to get me subsidizing people who are affluent who can afford to buy their own bikes, and we just are giving them a break. I mean that's one of the problems with the electric car incentive programs. But we also don't want to make it a barrier, cost a barrier for people who want to who want to get into these bikes. So it's it's kind of trying to find that sweet spot. Okay, so yeah, so that's what you would envision in West Van as well, like a like a yeah, mean, a means test yeah, a means sure. tested program. Okay, so uh, how much would it cost overall? So if you're going to give people hundreds of dollars to buy an e-bike, how much would the total program cost? Do you think? Well, it's scalable, Mike. You could have a fifty. You could put fifty thousand dollars in, and you only get, uh, let's say, you get at, if they're five hundred dollar rebates, you get a uh, hundred rebates, or you could put. Yeah. 200,000 in and you get and you get four times as many. So that's the beauty of it is once you get the program set up uh, and, and you get the administration streamlined, um, you can scale it every year. If it gets a huge sure. amount of take up, like Sanus has already run out of their rebates, um, uh, then it, you can just scale it for next year. You can put more money in it. If it's not working very well, you put less money in it. Um, so it's scalable. Right. So, yeah, you'd put a cap on the number of rebates that would be available in a, in a given year. And then how would you disperse those? Would it be like a first come, first serve kind of yeah. process? Yeah, that's how that's how Sanish has done it. First come, yeah. first serve. And you and you get on a list. And I, I noticed I went to their website this morning and I noticed they've actually got an e-list for uh, 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 for people to put out their list on for next year if they're, if they're interested. So 
I think the uh, the take up on this will be uh, will be big uh, when people uh, learn about it. You mentioned the. And I, uh, I note also, yeah. Mike. There's there's the Scrap It program has I think it's a seven hundred and fifty dollar uh, uh, rebate you can get if you scrap a car and buy an e bike. So if you combine those two, you can take a you know you can take a two thousand dollar bike. Uh, and, and potentially make it, you know, a five hundred dollar purchase, which is uh, which really reduces the barrier for somebody who's on, you know, not affluent. Yeah, that is a provincial program, the Scrap It program, and that is if you if you get rid of a car, right? Like, so if you trade mm. you trade in a motor vehicle, a car, and get an e bike instead, there's a fairly generous provincial rebate available. Yeah, it's seven hundred and fifty bucks, I think, or around there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's pretty good. And then if you combine that with a local incentive, I mean, you're starting to talk about some real money here. I mean, it could help people to get into one of these these bikes as well. Um, what do you think about the uh, the argument that I just got a couple of emails on this while we're speaking from people saying like, oh, you know, these things are really not that great for the environment because. Uh, they've got to use like rare earth minerals and stuff to make the batteries, and there's an environmental cost to these electric bikes as well. So let's not be fooling ourselves about how good they are for the environment. I mean, do you you think there's an environmental benefit on like climate change, though? Right? Uh, there's a huge benefit, and I'm going to throw a few numbers at you, Mike. Sure. So uh, I, e-bikes require less material and have lower manufacturing emissions than cars. So an e-bike battery, way less. An e-bike battery is only one to two percent of the size of an electric car battery. So that's that's tiny. And in terms of charging, uh, let's say you were, to, you know, an average e-bike, you can charge that. Uh, you can charge eighty e-bikes for what it takes to charge uh, a little Nissan Leaf, which is an electric wow. car. And you can, ch- you can charge 300 e-bikes for what it takes to charge Ford Lightning. So, okay. um, so, so they're, they're, ch- they're, they're much better for the environment in terms of rare earth minerals and in terms of uh, carbon footprint in ter- to manufacture in the first place. And they're much, uh, much better to run. What? Are they perfect? No, but they are, yeah. they're certainly a lot better than the alternatives. What about the health aspect of it? Like you said, oh, they're healthy for people too. I mean, if you're just zipping along with a, with a battery, you know, people might be thinking, well, how is that healthy? The thing is, they got pedals too. I mean, you can have a manual mode and a power, power mode too, right? Oh, yeah. No, you can, yeah. you, can, you can ride these things as normal bikes if you're feeling yeah, right. uh, like you want to you push yourself. Uh, or you can put it on turbo mode and you can basically uh, fly uphill. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, I, I ran out of the battery one time when I was testing out a friend's one. And, and let's, put, let's put it this way. That was a lot more work. But, you know, ultimately yeah. uh, what it does is it encourages people to bike a lot farther, uh, the research uh, says that people will go uh, 20 kilometers is not a big, uh, a, a big a distance to travel on an e-bike. So the research shows that people who are on e-bikes will simply go farther. They have a bigger radius where, they're, where they will realistically travel than people on uh, pedal bikes. Right. Okay, last, co- last question for you, Councillor. So when does this go in front of West Vancouver City Council? Well, what I'm trying to do, uh, Jordan Back, is a, a great uh, uh, friend of mine and is a counselor in the city, a district in North Vancouver, he brought it up, and he actually uh, spurred me to do it. And what they did is we've both now directed our councils, uh, our, each council has directed our staff to look into this program, what it would look like, the details that we were just discussing, 
and to come back to councils with a proposal. What I would ideally like is a North Shore-wide program so we could have one point of uh, uh, entry and uh, one staff person that's administering it for the entire North Shore to drive the administration costs down, and we just have some consistency. So I'm hoping to coordinate, and I don't see why that can't happen uh, by, by, by next year. Um, okay. You know, I, I, we gave our staff... Uh, a deadline uh, of, I, be- I believe, three months, I believe some January, February, to come back to us with something. But I'm hoping for a coordinated approach and that we can get this done. This is one of those should be relatively easy to put in place uh, programs. Okay, following it closely. Thank you for coming on to talk about it today. Absolutely, Mike. My pleasure.